Hey everybody, I am your host Eric Mueller and welcome back to the Eric Mueller Show, the podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Now this is the final episode of 2022 and as we wrap up the second full year of the podcast, I really cannot put into words how thankful I am for each person listening and supporting my show. To send out the year with a bang, I sat down to interview the CEO of Professional Hair Labs, Ryan Margolin. Ryan set out on a journey to help create the world-leading product in cosmetic bonding when his mother was poisoned by the harmful chemicals in the hair adhesive products commonly used in the industry. Inspired to keep the same thing from happening to anyone else, his family dove into the research and created their first hair care product free of harmful substances. Now, 20 years later, Ryan is an international business leader and an entrepreneur who works in more than 15 different countries. There, he helps create sustainable services and products in various industries full of subpar and even harmful options. Ryan's expertise in effectively taking concepts and formulating strategies for success, as well as his flexibility, clarity, and dedication to putting people first, Professional Hair Labs has expanded its manufacturing tenfold. The company has also become one of the 500 fastest-growing companies in the United States over the last five years, and they've sold more than $50 million in product globally. Happy New Year, everybody. I really hope that 2023 brings so much success and happiness to you and your family. And thanks again for the support of the podcast. I can't wait to continue to dive into what our success portfolios are made of. Let's head on over to the interview. All right, welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, the podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. We have another impressive CEO on the show today, Ryan Margolin. Ryan leads one of the 500 fastest growing companies in the United States over the last five years, Professional Hair Labs. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm uh, really looking forward forward to the chat. Me too. Yeah, this this is going to be a fun one. I think if you're listening and you are wondering about how to niche down or how to get a really specific solution to a problem, you're going to love what Ryan has to say. But before we dive into your expertise here, Ryan, we want to know what makes up your success portfolio. So if you're listening and you're new to the show, let me give you just a little bit of background on this. So I like to think of it as an investment portfolio is the compilation of investments that lay foundation for financial goals. Well, here on the Eric Mueller Show, we want to discover how successful people like Ryan invest in themselves and build the foundation for their success. So Ryan, start us off. What are some skills or traits or habits, mindsets, however you want to take this, that make up your success portfolio? Yes. Look, I think for myself, it's obviously been a lot of lessons over the last decade. Um, And a lot of mistakes were made. Uh, a lot of reflection, but I think as you go as you go along, and especially when you're in in the core of a growing company, um, it's really important that you narrow down, you know, the reasons why uh, you decided to change or how you decided to change. Whether that was through means of, uh, you know, um, through mentorship, whether it was through circle changes. What there, there's a whole different bunch of variables, variables. But what I've really broken it down to uh, throughout my life. Uh, and and I think the principles that that I kind of live by, uh, my portfolio was made up of five five key fundamentals, really. Uh, and uh, 
I mean, just to touch base on on the you know the five of them, um, I think I think really it's about having you know the belief in yourself because there's going to be a lot of long nights with no applause, no recognition. Uh, when times get tough, you're your only motivator. So it's it's quite important that you 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 know the work has to come you know before people believe it, and you you need to accept that. Um, I think it's vitally important to look at um, you know managing your focus. And, and what do I mean by that? It's, you know, typically you can look at somebody who says, okay, well, look, I've got 20 hours in a week or three hours in a week and, you know, I've got to get this amount done and time becomes, you know, the clock that's ticking. Whereas if you flip the script on that a little bit and you learn to manage your focus, time becomes irrelevant because you've literally pushed all distractions out to the side and to the back of you and you can totally focus uh, for that period of whether it's three hours or you know two days you can totally focus on what you're doing and not pay attention to the time at all i think uh one of the other key things for me as part of that portfolio would be that progress is, is progress no matter what way you look at it and the only way you're really going to lose out of all of it and not learn anything is if you stop. Uh, I look, there's a key principle for me. It's actually a, a, a quote or a lyric that Jay Z wrote. And uh, the quote was, uh, or the lyric was, um, I will not lose even in defeat. There's a valuable lesson learned. So it evens it up for me. So the key really is, you know, it, failure is a common thing we all share. And I think it's vitally important that we accept that as part of our, you know, human characteristic. It's it, it's it's part of who we are, and we have to train ourselves to look for the opportunities for success within those failures. Um, changing your circle is, you know, just as important as all of those. I, I think as you grow as a person, um, it's vitally important that you have a solid, you know, circle around you, a small circle that can hold you accountable, um, that can fill you with. Uh, encouragement, uh, good advice, but also hold you accountable when you're not doing things too uh, too well. So I think that's vitally important. And uh, part of the last, uh, you know, the last thing I'll say about it is, um, you know, fear and anxiety is probably the one thing that holds up most entrepreneurs or business owners and stops them from doing things. Uh, I think if you can learn to control that part of it, it's, a, it, it's like controlling a fire. Uh, you know, fire has the ability to do one of two things it can paralyze you stop you in your tracks and while you're standing around looking at everything it's burning everything down around you or you can look to control it and if you control it it can keep you warm you know so it you know fire can do two things and and it's your choice of which one you're going to allow it to do so i think looking back on the last 10 years of my journey those are the key principles that i've really learned about myself and the changes that i've made that have had the most impact yeah. And, and Ryan, have you noticed, like, we can look at maybe that fire, like that failure. Yeah. And that's like an, ine an inevitable piece of an entrepreneur, you know, and really just anybody that's trying to better themselves in any avenue of life, they're going to experience failure and setback. And I love how you, how you kind of use that analogy of that fire, because really that was, I hadn't thought of it in that way that, I mean, it can obviously burn your house down and you can have a tragedy or you might need to build a fire to survive in the wilderness. So, I mean, cook your food and stuff. So I think where I want to go with this now is if you experience failure, but you still remain driven, have you noticed through your career and life here, like what are those driving forces that keep you ticking towards that success and like that keep your, you know, inner clock burning towards it? Basically, have you noticed any kind of common traits that or, or experiences that you can think of that that kept you going? 
Yes, uh, there, there's quite a few, um, and they they run fairly even and parallel with each other. I mean, look, one side of it is that you know I'm, I always stick firm to the mission and the why of what our company does, um, which is you know develop and launch safe, effective products. Due to my experiences uh, in the past, uh, the other side is my family. Uh, naturally, um, you know, growing up in in the environment that I did. Um, I want, I'm highly motivated and driven to provide my family and my kids, especially with the opportunities to, you know, better themselves and, and teach them the things that I might not have been taught when I was younger. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, thirdly, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's just, I actually enjoy the failure part of it because I think it's, you know, you learn very little from the wins. It's the wins that happen because of the experience of the failure. So you're almost looking for that reason to, you know, hit a roadblock or hit a challenge. I mean, look, we as humans, you know, we've, we've been so conditioned to believe that there's some like elusive, you know, success barometer and that nothing we ever do will allow us to be successful enough. Um, and like, you know, look, I mean, you can look at visionaries, you can look at icons and, you know, look, even they understood that it's celebrating the small wins from, you know, from the learning of the failures that we find the encouragement and the motivation to continue towards the big ones. And I, you know, I think that's one of the most valuable opportunities we have as, as business owners or entrepreneurs. It's the opportunity to fail. Yeah. And, and to that point as well, that kind of the success maybe being a moving target. I think that that's probably something a lot of people struggle with. And I want to know, like, what is the definition of success for, for you? Because I think it'll help people listening think how, you know, maybe you're thinking about success in the wrong way. Maybe it shouldn't necessarily be a destination or a, or a specific goal, money, you know, as, as probably the main example of, of, the, of the wrong way to do it. But Ryan, like to you, what, is, what does that t term success mean? How do you know if you've been successful? Is there a, is there a possibility of a barometer for you? Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to answer this in, in two ways. So I, I think success, right, at, at its core, um, you can break it down as simple or as complex as you want. But I think ultimately we view it as some psychological science based on some big complex equation. And if we put these pieces together, we'll be able to achieve all these successes and these uh, these goals that, you know, we have set for ourselves. And, you know, you're often left thinking, is it really that simple? And, you know, if we follow this simple formula, uh, will we achieve everything we set out to do? And, and look, uh, to me, the answer is, I don't know, maybe, you know, but I think the mm -hmm. real question in that is that, you know, if it is possible, it's, you know, how do we do this? And throughout the years that I've done, you know, what I've done, I think, you know, my, my version or my, um, I suppose my, my definition of success would be balance. And I think balance, it means, a, look, success and balance means different things to different people. What I find commonly is what happens is when people try to create balance um, or have balance, they add more things to their plate. Mm. What happens is when they start to do that, they start to build this over, you know, overwhelming set of tasks that are just not possible to complete. And then they, they just go to the back burner. When you start managing a back burner, you've lost. Let it go. You know, so I think, you know, in, in my opinion, uh, balance is actually achieved from subtracting everything. And I think for me, that's success. If you can find balance by subtracting all of the stuff you don't need in your life and focus on the results that you want to get, 
I think that is probably the single fastest way to get to where you want to go. Yeah. And, and honestly, Ryan, I think this perfectly ties into what you do at your company right now with Professional Hair Labs in terms of focusing so finely, basically having such a fine-tuned focus on what your products do and the mission behind it. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I'll let you share it as far as the the why behind the company. You mentioned, you know, some experiences, maybe, you know, not an, not an ideal experience with harmful chemicals with your mother. Would you mind sharing that story kind of as far as what happened that spurred this yeah. company? Sure. So, so, um, my, my mother was a master hair technician or is a master hair technician. She's retired now and, um, she's gotten over the challenges that she's had, but, um, due to the products that they were using and, and the industry being so unregulated, uh, and unmonitored, uh, there was a lot of toxic chemicals in the products that she was using over the years. And even with correct ventilation and the cor- correct precautions, she got chemical poisoning. So it forced her into early retirement. And what happened from that point was then my dad eventually sold the hair replacement businesses and he went in to focus on a safe product line for technicians and for hair wearers. So that's really where all of this started back in 94. And from 94 to 2009, um, you know, the, the, the company low six figures remained quite stagnant. It was touching the surface of what the industry was doing, but it, we were still missing, you know, the magic keys. And I think the reason we were missing that was from, you know, there was, there was a few simple, you know, strategic things that we did to change that um, when I came on board in, in 2009. But um, realistically, this, this product was uh, so niche and we knew it had the opportunity to revolutionize everything. We just had to get it out to the masses. So uh, that was the background story of why we do what we do. Our mission is to manufacture safe, effective products. And we spent so long operating in the hair replacement industry that, you know, we've now taken those same principles and methodologies and we've applied them now to the, you know, the deeper cosmetic space. And we're, you know, manufacturing, you know, hair care, body care, skin care, self tanning, um, tons of different types of, uh, of cosmetic products. So it's been a really interesting journey. And it's all, you know, it's all aligned with the initial motivator, which was safety. Yeah, safe. And, you know, toxic hair products. I mean, I think that's certainly a concern of anybody listening. I mean, you use, I'm sure a ton of hair products every single day. And you would hate to have something happen, in which case you you become ill. I mean, like your mother, Ryan. So, I mean, happy to hear that she's she's doing well now, but an early retirement, obviously not an ideal outcome. So your company is helping people prevent a problem like that in the future by building those safe products. And what I thought was really cool, and I'll tag this in the show notes, the Amazon link to your, your company's flagship product, Ghost Bond. That is actually the most popular brand of cosmetic bonding adhesive out there. And I actually looked this up after the interview was booked. I looked it up on Amazon and it is literally the number one bestseller in its category, which you cannot get more niche than that. 26,000 or so reviews on Amazon right now. Ryan, I'm sure we're all wondering the same thing. What is the secret to creating a product like that? You gave, you gave the backstory for the why. So you identified the problem, which that's, that's a huge hurdle in the first place. But after you know it's a problem, how do you then create that solution that is, has been so successful for your company? I, I think it's really about taking the position of putting people first. Uh, education. Um, you know, we, we don't charge for our education at all. We have many hours and hours a week worth of conversations with new accounts, current accounts, and, 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 and people who are just genuinely, uh, generally have questions about the products they use. So 
we even deal with queries that you know are from our competitors' products, but we will answer them to the best of our knowledge because look, we're one of the only few companies in the industry who make our products, so we know we know know them intimately. And I think once you start to focus on people first, I think the sales and the popularity of the product, putting aside the branding and marketing strategy, um, they're they're really the key drivers in all of this. Because at the end of the day, if 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 a consumer can come to a company and get the answers that they need and they can get the clarity that they need, uh, they will continue to buy and use that product, you know, in a, in a world that's full of subpar options, you know? So going back to what you said there about, you know, having the number one product in the industry and in on Amazon in our category, naturally that brings then the challenges of counterfeits and stuff. And we, we could write a book on that. Um, we're, you know, we're heavily invested in, in defending our position with trademarks and IP, but um, you know, look, the the, the 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 listing that we built on Amazon was purely from you know just investing the time and energy in, into the channel and 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 getting what we knew was a viable solution to the marketplace. Yeah, and I think by by creating that value proposition and that solution to someone's problem that they're currently having, I think I mean that's huge. That's that's the name of the game for an entrepreneur to be able to do that. But I'm happy that you mentioned that intellectual property, that IP component, because I know you have some expertise in in doing that, like you just mentioned, because that's the first thing that I thought of when I thought of your product was like, what happens in the event that someone tries to counterfeit that? A- a- have you found any ways that, you know, entrepreneurs listening can maybe protect their brands and IP, like any strategies you found to be most effective in that way? Yeah, I think so. So the key thing is, if you don't have experience of how to protect your brand, it's a minefield. Um, everyone you ask is going to have a different uh, a, a different opinion. And even from a legal standpoint, you know, we've spoken to many, uh, you know, uh, IP attorneys over the years, and they've all differed in their approach. But as we went on, I I think it comes down. If if somebody was asking me today, if I you know what were what would be my key countries to start your IP rights. And trademarks in, I would say three places, USA, China, and EU, get an EU trademark. Once you have those, you're, you're, you're pretty set to get going because naturally what's going to happen the moment you put popularity in either of those countries, uh, it's going to be counterfeited in China. And I remember the very first day we saw our counterfeit, you know, a counterfeit product popped up. One turned into 30, turned into 300, turned into 3000. Um, you know, on average, we're, we're removing at least half a million dollars a month worth of products off, off online sales. That's not even touching the distribution channels that these counterfeiters have found their way into. But having said that, um, we went a long way to solving this over the last couple of years as we've developed our custom, uh, a custom software. That allows us to um, integrate QR codes into our uh, packaging, so customers can use their app on their phone to scan the code that's on our packaging. If they find that it's not authentic or they have queries about it, they can report it directly from the app. We can get the information on where they bought it from, uh, pictures of the product, and so we can start to see the hot spots where counterfeits are starting to pop up, and we know where to send our investigators into. So it's uh, it's we, we we're refining it as we go along, but. Um, we'll never fully get rid of the counterfeits, but we're going to make a big dent in their ability to supply. Yeah. And that, that's kind of what I thought of with, with counterfeit products. What I think of typically is like the clothing industry or like Nike shoes, yeah. jerseys, like it's, it's kind of tough sometimes to know what you're buying. Is it authentic? Especially if you're thinking, if you're listening and thinking, oh, I go to eBay and look for things or, you know, you really never know what you're buying until you get it. So I think that, yeah, having a QR code, some way to authenticate that. 
especially with a product where, you know, you look on Amazon and look at Ghost Bond and it's in, you know, a bottle type type container. So someone, if they get your label copied well enough yeah. and there's no QR code, someone might receive that and think it's legit and then think it's not pr- providing enough value to me and then they might not buy it. So like, it's kind of like a cascading effect of, of negativity towards your company. So I'm glad that, um, thank you for sharing that. Hopefully, hopefully if anyone has a really super unique niche idea that they can protect it by getting those, getting those trademarks in those countries. Uh, 100%. And, you know, and I'm quite passionate about this because, you know, look, not taking away from any other industry, um, but, you know, a a purse or a handbag or a t-shirt is not the same as a cosmetic product. You know, you're not, you're putting this on your skin and and it's doing damage to you. So um, I'm quite passionate about this. And if there was anyone that was listening or is listening to the show that finds themselves in uh, in the, with the need for that, I'd be more than happy to connect them with, you know, some really good IP attorneys that can get the job done from, because uh, it's when I hear about those things happening, it really genuinely, uh, it, 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 it really strikes a chord with me because, uh, you know, it's just, I, I've seen what happened to our brand and uh, I would love to help anyone avoid that at all costs. Yeah, we definitely appreciate that. And if that is you listening right now and you need that guidance, I'll tag in the show notes a way to contact Ryan. We'll ask him at the end what the best way to reach him is. Also, uh, Ryan, so I mean, looking at it from kind of those two angles, that was not something I thought of was not only is this maybe not going to be valuable to your customer if they buy a counterfeit, but it could also cause them harm because, yeah, this is a body product and people, you know, the cosmetic bonding, they're putting it, you know, on their head and they're, you know, using it on a daily basis, you know, for a wig maybe. And so I think that that obviously protecting that is beneficial to both your company and the customer. So you're you're still keeping that customer value in the front of your mind. And this kind of brings me once I was doing additional research into your brand, I was really curious how you built it to be really so notable because obviously company started in 94, family-run business, and I do have a question about how how working in a family-run business is for you. But have you have you noticed anything that's been really the most effective for building that brand? You kind of shared a little bit about how you you got the products to, you know, be tailored to the right audience. But really, how did the, how did the brand get built after that point? Yeah. So when I joined the company in 2009, I spent the first six months learning about it, you know, intricately. I looked at you know the the, the market, the the avatar we were we were uh, focusing on, uh, the operations inside of the company. And during those six months, three of those months were spent manually building a database on an Excel sheet of all the hair replacement studios in the United States, because we knew we had a good product. Um, it was still missing a couple of key uh, functional components that the just simply the technology didn't exist the years prior. But for some weird reason, there was an alignment there where the technology was available uh, to, to provide water and oil resistance. So we reformulated quite quickly. Um, during that reformulation process is when we were doing all of this, you know, uh, brand changing and, and new strategy. So we had this large database of hair replacement studios and we did a direct mail campaign. Uh, I think it was like maybe 5,000, if I'm not mistaken, hair replacement studios. We broke it up into three separate shipments because there was only three of us in the building. And uh, we didn't want to be inundated with phone calls because we didn't have the resources to handle them. So when we did that, it was a simple front and back postcard. Front was like the new brand, the new the new company brand, the product brand, Ghost Bond, um, the, the, the benefits of the product. And then on the back was just testimonials for some uh, well-known uh, hair replacement authorities. And uh, it just took off. Uh, everyone was calling, was like, yeah, send me a bottle, I'll buy a bottle. 
that one bottle then reorder would turn to five bottles, 10 bottles, 25 bottles. And before you know it, in 18 months, we tripled revenue. So what happened at that point then was like, okay, now we validated this product. We know we have scope to take this uh, to a global audience. And we invested in opening a European branch. And what I found that I was like, look, this is great. Um, I was like, I know all this. I have all this data from the US and this worked amazingly well. I'm just going to you know, replicate it, roll it out in Europe. And that's exactly what I did and uh, fell flat in my face. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I realized then is like, I, I couldn't believe it. I was just there. But that again, that that's all part of the naive, you know, early learning curve that, you know, of, of, of growing a business, you know, that, like different countries in the world have different cultures and different ways of doing business. And what works in one country, you know, may not work in the next. And it took me six months after that to really figure it out and start to build some wholesale and distribution channels. But I, I'm really glad that happened because um, nothing worthwhile ever comes easy. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we did the right things right in the US. But you know, expanding it to a global product was not an easy task. Yeah, that I think that's probably the next kind of piece. If someone looks at your company, they probably wonder how you scaled internationally. Like you know, have a presence in in a global market, basically. And obviously, you can buy it on Amazon, and you could probably have it shipped internationally. But it's there's kind of two unique things that I noticed. And you mentioned it earlier that you manufacture your own products. So that might be kind of another piece as far as how do you scale internationally while you're doing that and then also are you are you getting the trademarks before you even enter into like if you're trying to sell in china like you definitely know you need to do that first or kind of what is the order with that so maybe, maybe those kind of two-pronged approaches for for selling internationally uh so naturally my belief now is that you would want to go trademark in the countries you're you're figuring targeting five years out okay we did it a little bit differently because we were forced to do it differently we were left in a position where we had all these counterfeits in countries that we weren't supplying to. And we were like, okay, we, we have two choices here. We can either choose to just succumb to this and, you know, just say, okay, look, it's too big of a task, or we can look at this as an opportunity to uh, take the, the, the brand being pushed into these countries we're not already in mm -hmm. and trying to scale or trying to claw back some of that business by letting these people know it's counterfeit products. So, we were forced into the position of trademarking our product in countries we didn't have targeted because of these counterfeits. So it worked a little bit differently for us. But if I had the choice, I would like look five years out of what countries you want to develop and go get those trademarks. Okay. And then for, for, for manufacturing like an in-house product, is that it, what have you found to be like the most difficult aspect with that? Or, or maybe it's been the most easy aspect as far as your you're creating something that's proprietary and you're not sourcing something, you know, it makes you more unique. It makes you even more niche, honestly. Like there's pros and cons. I mean, from, from the pros perspective, it, it's, you know, look, you have full control over the development. So, you know, consistency is right. Batches are right. And, uh, you know, just the, the overall experience of the product is hundred percent right at all times. Um, the cons of it, there was heavy investment required, heavy resources required to, you know, get to the point where we had the machinery uh, from a manufacturing and a bottling and a packaging, you know, uh, perspective. So, um, you know, look, I, I think uh, for us, looking at the the whole uh, the whole scope of everything, I think if you're if you're building a brand, um, and if you're working with a contract manufacturer or you're working with a you know custom formulator like we do, we provide the service. It's vitally important that you 
uh, you have a good relationship with them. And it's vitally important that you ensure that not only are they certified, you know, from a GMP or ISO perspective, but that they also keep an open line of communication for you because, you know, we, we weren't always manufacturing the products. Mm-hmm. We we had our own formulas in, in the early 2000s. We had our own formulas, but they were being made for us. Um, we developed them and we handed them off to be manufactured. But what we were finding is that if a, you know, if a manufacturer was short of an ingredient, they'd replace it without telling us. And they would like, they, they, it's just the same to them. But when our customers got it, they would notice a difference in performance and we would notice it. So, um, there, you know, there, there was a whole, you know, positive move when we decided, okay, we're going to heavily invest in, in the manufacturing process. And so now we have, um, we have a team of 24 plus people, um, you know, uh, sit, situated between business development, warehouse operatives, chemists, um, uh operations uh and uh marketing so and and design so it's uh it's really turned into a company that uh has really been able to realize the potential of what it can do and um look i just i I can't say that there's there's anything that's happened over the last 10 years that i would look back on and say i wish it didn't because it's all led us to where we are now yeah i think having that quality control like that seemed to be i was i was thinking that might be a pro to be able to have that you know, that foresight as far as what is being manufactured and sent out, like if an ingredient's short, at least you have your eyes on it and you know that you could probably communicate that to your customers then. But, yeah, but well, we don't. And that's the thing. It's uh, because we control, you know, the, the, the manufacturing now, we don't run out of ingredients because we know, look, we can forecast very easily. And one of the strategies we use is carrying a 20% surplus to, you know, to take into fact a potential growth, uh, growth spurt of, of the product. So uh, we're always covered regardless. And, and I just think, you know, that to me, when, when you don't have to turn around to a customer and say, listen, we can't give you the product, um, that, that's going to just make sure that they keep coming back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's super smart. Didn't think, didn't think of it that, you know, you, you plan, you're, you're very forward thinking and planning is really an overarching theme of, it seems like how you operate professional hair labs, but both with the patent, you know, advice for people is to do that ahead of time. And also if you are manufacturing an in-house product to plan for, for the worst, you know, have even more than you think you might need because you're, you're really just predicting that you might grow more. And that's probably, I mean, it, it really like makes me think that that might be the best way to go. If you have a niche idea is to, is to manufacture in-house. And so, I mean, that's at least where my mind goes. If you can do it, it sounds like the best play. Would you agree with that, Ryan? Absolutely. And I mean, that that's not going to happen overnight, but aim for it, you know, yeah. absolutely aim for it. Because you know what, no company of any size or that that's manufacturing, you know, of any sort of magnitude, wasn't in a position previous to that where they were operating with one machine, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, don't don't let it fool you. Like it's, you know, look, at the end of the day, you know, some companies go deep and they get finance and they buy all the equipment they need, but it just puts a horrendous pressure on the operations um patience just have patience it'll it'll if you have a niche product that solves a problem it'll get there you know it will right and like you mentioned earlier it's it's not going to be easy it's not meant to be easy nothing worthwhile ever is and if you're listening right now and that sounds familiar you may be thinking of the interview episode with joseph carella episode 30 he said something very very similar to that ryan so I, hopefully you're listening to this guys and and girls and and finding these commonalities amongst these successful entrepreneurs that hopefully helps you develop into what you want to become. And another unique aspect of Ryan's company is that it's a family-run business. I just spoke with a, a gentleman, Travis Smith, a few episodes back, episode 44. If you haven't checked that out, please do so. 
But we asked him, like, is getting into business with family the wrong idea? And he had, a, you know, he had a pretty interesting take on it. But I want to ask you, Ryan, what what is what is your take on that? What are some advantages to, and disadvantages with working alongside family? Um, so all I can really speak about is from our own perspective. And what I will say is that we're three, myself and my two brothers are three individuals who are, uh, who have learned to be highly communicative with each other. Uh, we're very open with each other, very transparent. Uh, and I think our natural demeanor of, um, just, uh, just, uh, empathy has helped us an awful lot. Uh, my experience of working in a family business, don't get me wrong, it comes with challenges sometimes, mm-hmm. but there's nothing a conversation can't solve. And one of the key things I think for us, um, and it was a decision we made a long time ago, uh, you know, effort and work inside of a company comes in swings and roundabouts. There's sometimes when ha- harder workloads are on others' plates more than others. So uh, I think, you know, progressing from a place of equality in a familiar business is vitally important. Um, because ultimately it gets rid of all the roadblocks and you can achieve the levels of success that you want without having to worry about whether somebody is thinking, you know, one person is entitled to more than the other. Um, that's just the wrong way of thinking. No one's entitled to anything. You know, it's a, you know, you co- you come from a place of equality, you keep an open line of communication and just have some empathy, uh, to put yourself in the other person's shoes when things get a little bit tough. And I think you'll, you'll be in a good place. But for me, uh, a familiar business is is totally manageable. Um, and I don't think it comes with any more hurdles or challenges than, uh, you know, the, albeit different ones than, than one where you, you have a bunch of stakeholders or shareholders in the company and, you, and you're trying to, you know, keep a board happy. We have our own board as well. But ultimately, the, the decisions that we make for the company are amongst the three of us. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you can pick and choose, but I, I take the familiar side all day. Yeah, though I, I think you know, working with you are the CEO of this company, and working with your employees, like you, you probably almost want to think of them as family, even if they're not your brothers. I mean, so I think the way you speak that really shows me that you know what you're doing in terms of leading people, and I think that's such an important takeaway for someone that has aspirations to do that and be in charge or be a founder or CEO of some type of organization to be able to have that empathetic mindset. And so appreciate that, Ryan. I think that I think that's really big. No, that, that look, that's no problem at all. And look, I think uh, one of the key things as well is that, you know, whether you work in a familiar business or not, there has to come a point where uh, you have to have those hard discussions, uh, not only with each other, but with yourself to uh, realize what your strong points are and your weak points are, because no one is the best at everything. And I think once you really get to the core of what you can do for the company, I think that will naturally answer a lot of the questions about, you know, where you need to be. Uh, so we all landed in a place in the company where we were happy with the roles we have and we knew we could give the best of what we who we were and what we had to the company and so far it's worked so um i you know i i think it's just vitally important that uh, you do at some point uh, have to look at yourself in the mirror and face that reflection and be very very honest because um you know cultivating that that honest relationship and that honest you know conversation with yourself i think is is hugely important um to 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 progressing as a person for sure. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't happen overnight to, to harp on a point you made earlier and really anything worthwhile is not going to be easy guys. And, and really to just key you in too on, on the kind of guy Ryan is, so you can't see him as I can right now, but it looks kind of dark. He's actually recording in Ireland right now. It's almost two in the morning. So this guy is just, he's grinding and he has his mind in a place of 
empathy and he wants to give back and he wants to be able to share with you anything that can help you on your journey. So Ryan, what is the best way to contact you if someone wants to reach out and learn a little bit more or maybe they have a burning question for you? Yeah, well, LinkedIn is usually my hangout. So you can find me personally there. Um, from the business perspective, we're on all major you know, social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and our website, ProHairLabs.com. But um, yeah, look, I mean, uh, LinkedIn is, 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 is my go. Perfect. Yeah, and everybody listening, if you go to ericrmuller.com forward slash Eric Mueller show, click to listen, you'll be able to find this episode. If you click in there, You'll see all the show notes, so we'll have all the links tagging where to contact Ryan, how to access his company's website. Ryan Margolin, we really can't thank you enough for being on the podcast, sharing your insights, and telling us about your success portfolio. I think that really has been an impactful conversation and look forward to continuing to follow your journey. Thanks very much, Eric. It was great to speak to you. 